Hello and welcome to the Project and Ethical Science podcast. My name is Neve Healy and I am the Ethical Science Project Officer for Student in Pugwash UK. In this series, we will be interviewing prominent scientists and technologists about their views on a whole host of topics in ethical science. We're kicking the series off today with an interview with Professor Dem Ottoline Leiser. Professor Dem Ottoline Leiser is the Chief Executive of UK Research and Innovation and Regis Professor of Botany at the University of Cambridge. Prior to this, Ottoline Leiser was Director of the Sainsbury Laboratory, University of Cambridge, an interdisciplinary research institute combining computational modelling with molecular genetics and cell biology to elucidate the dynamical systems underpinning the control of plant growth and development. Ottoline has a long-term interest in research culture and its effects on the quality and effectiveness of the research system. She chaired the Nuffield Council of Bioethics Project examining these issues and has been actively engaged in work aimed at generating a more inclusive, creative and connected culture. Our first question to all our guests is, what does ethics in science mean to you? Yes, I think this is actually quite an interesting question. I think one can come at it from two different directions that they're sort of separate, but actually overlap. So I would say there is a whole load of issues around the ethical conduct of science. So, um, you know, universities, for example, will have ethics committees for research. Mostly what they do is ask whether your um, project is ethical in the way that it's conducted. So um, if there's human subjects involved, are they ethically recruited and, and, and is the study and your interactions with them in that study ethical in some sense, um, animal experimentation, but also um, there are wider questions around, for example, um, the funders and whether the funders have any influence on the project and if so, what? And of course, then um, questions around the, the kind of integrity of the research process itself. So um, are you giving appropriate credit to everybody who is involved? Have you presented the results in a way that's um, uh, really a reflection of what they say? All of those kinds of things. And so uh, I, I think every single researcher has to take all of those things very seriously in how they go about their job because I think having a, a really clear idea about that is incredibly important for the integrity of the research process and for the, the trust in which um, everybody can, can place in the process. So I think that's crucial. And then of course, there's the other whole kind of domain, which is the ethical um, uh, use of the results coming out of research. And there's obviously a lot of um, debate and discussion about that for with particular uh, kind of more controversial areas like, um, for example, genome editing in humans. Is it ethical to do germline genome editing? Um, those kinds of things. And, and very broadly across the whole spectrum, there's always a question of whether the risks and benefits associated with any outcome of research are equitably distributed across the population. And that's another important um, ethical issue across the population and between generations. So there's a whole range of things I think one needs to think about in, in the context of the outputs. That, that there are quite a lot of people who argue that, um, that science is, is kind of 
almost amoral it's it's you know you you do you're some kind of wonderful shiny logical person and you produce some fabulous output and it's nothing to do with you how that output is then applied but i think that's actually not a responsible way to think about the system for all kinds of reasons that um <clears throat> yeah so I, I certainly couldn't do research in that way it's not how i would approach my work or my life for that matter brilliant thank you um, so to your mind, what are the most urgent ethical issues in science today? Um, I guess I would come back to that issue of equitable distribution of risks and benefits. That's a very general issue that applies right across research. In terms of um, the areas where I've worked, which are largely around genetics, developmental genetics, mostly in plants, um, it's very clear that the, the kind of molecular biology revolution has um, thrown up a whole range of, of ethical issues. I've mentioned genome editing and its applications before, but then coming in from the other side, from um, uh, the, the kind of physical sciences, um, AI, um, robotics, those kinds of things, that, that I think we're reaching a moment in history where the relationship between the biological world and the and the, the, the kind of human driven physical world is becoming more and more blurred. So the amount of influence we are able to have on life and the interface between living and non-living machines um, is, is uh, it's a very exciting area with lots of opportunity, but also absolutely lots of very deep ethical issues that we need to examine as a society as we, as we move forward. Definitely. Um, so tell me about your career. Um, how did you go about building a career that is values-driven and ethically minded? And what advice would you give to a younger person doing the same? So um, I, I suppose my whole approach to life at some level starts with understanding my values. I, I think I think one of the things that makes people the most profoundly unhappy is trying to live a life that is in conflict with their values. And I, I, I just couldn't do that, wouldn't want to do that. <laughs> um, so I, I think that's fundamental. And I think it's a really important thing for everybody is, is to ask themselves what really matters to them. What do they care about? What are the important anchors in their life that they value that are their values and so I think that's a crucial question to anybody embarking on a career of any sort and one of the fantastic things about a research career in general is is the extraordinary amount of freedom you have in many ways to shape that particularly in the academic sector it's really very much up to you what you do and and how you do it obviously within some kind of legal framework but hopefully nobody's values are massively in conflict with the law so um, well, some people's are but we you know that's that's a whole different problem <laughs> so I, I think um in the context of building a career the the, the flip side or not even the flip side that the, the career's advice that i think a lot of young people are given it, it, is, is very focused on um, 
on how to succeed in a very narrow set of criteria. You have to, you know, get this sort of degree, go to that sort of university, work in this sort of lab, work on that sort of project. And, and that's a lot of advice like that around. And in my opinion and also experience, it's frankly nonsense. <laughs> it, it, I think um, the people who are really driven by yeah their their values by a desire to do something that works for them that ambition um is incredibly valuable in in shaping your career it helps you with all the decisions you have to make it helps you um with all the obstacles you have to navigate in a way that's much more um constructive and useful then I'm trying to get to this, you know, I want to be a professor at this university by the time I'm age X, therefore I have to publish papers like this, do science like that. And that kind of approach, that very operational approach is, it doesn't, it's not nearly as effective in my experience as, you know, I really, really want to understand how this system works because I find it exciting for the following reasons and I want to work in a way that supports those around me and a whole range of different things that that um, matter to people. I think that's a much more compelling and successful approach to building your career. And I think it's really important that people kind of believe that. I, I talk to a lot of people who are so worried about where their next paper's going to get published, where their next grant's going to come from. And, and I can understand why, because those are in, in some ways uh, um, kind of existential um, issues for people. But I suppose that's the other thing I've always felt that although it's brilliant to have a career in research and I've enjoyed my time in research tremendously, I've always felt that there are other ways that I could support my who I am and what my values are and what I'm trying to achieve. And so I've never felt that if that, that career path was somehow blocked, I would, that would be a disaster. I, they're precisely because you're driven by your values. You can always see where the alternative paths lie. And I think that's incredibly powerful and supportive as you're going through a, a career where there are a lot of uncertainties and obstacles and chance in whether or not you'll succeed. I really, I, I love that idea of having a, a values-based approach. Um, I'm actually a, a full-time PhD student, so I, I do really relate to that idea of uncertainty um, and really chance, like, factoring what happens, like, as you move forward in an academic career. So I, I love the idea that if you are relying on your values, then there's many paths that are open to you. Um, Absolutely. So what would you say are some mistakes that are often made in pursuing the most ethical decision? <laughs> I, I, when when I, I read this question about the most ethical decision, I thought, right there, that's a mistake. <laughs> because it kind of implies that there is one and you'll be able to know what it is relatively straightforwardly. Whereas <laughs> quite often in, in, in the... In, you know almost the point is these are very difficult areas uh, you know where where th there's an obvious decision where absolutely everybody would 
99.9% of people would agree this is a good thing to do, that's a bad thing to do, that's pretty straightforward. <laughs> where, where you're making a decision and, the, and, it, and it's difficult, that's where quite often different people will have different ideas about what's ethical and what's not ethical, what you should or shouldn't do. And uh, I, I think that is, a, is actually a crucial part of, the, of navigating the landscape is understanding that there is no best solution and what you're doing is trying to find the best balance between um, the interests of different people or different groups or different ideas that are in some way in conflict and you know so you know it's very often for example a, a tension between the rights and benefits to an individual versus the rights and benefits of a, of a group or a population those, those kinds of tensions come up all the time and I think for me one of the key elements in navigating that is is to try very hard to listen as widely as possible to many as many different sorts of people as possible to understand different people's perspectives and see how they relate to one another and also to your own and move forward accordingly uh, i mean again i think that's much easier to do if you understand your own values and where they come from and and how they're anchored and so you can fit all of the other information you're getting in, into your own personal frame and that makes it much easier to take on board that information than if you don't know who you are and what your values are <coughs> in in the same way and so all of this information is coming kind of context free almost um but uh, but certainly it's some of the most interesting things I've done in my career have been to work on projects and committees that have involved bringing together people from very different disciplines with very different points of view and, and listening to all of those different inputs into how you consider an ethical problem. And, and so I, I served, for example, for many years on the Nuffield Council for Bioethics, which was all about this stuff. <laughs> and it was, it was such an interesting experience with that diversity of views and understanding and producing these you know substantial reports about how to navigate these difficult ethical landscapes really integrating the views of these multiple different people and the expertise of these multiple different people so uh, as an academic you, you kind of rely on your expertise and you you feel most confident when you're you're working built on that foundation on the things you really know and this is very different from that you have it, it felt like some kind of one of those giant um, kind of team building games where you have to fall over and trust the rest of the team catch you <laughs> it's kind of an intellectual version of that which I think is a really valuable thing to do um, for so many reasons in the ethical context but also as a as a researcher as a scientist as somebody who's trying to solve problems to understand that there are multiple ways of looking at the same problem is a really useful uh, a skill to have. Wonderful. So to your mind, um, what makes a career in STEM ethical? Are there associated best practices or kind of guiding principles that can help make a career in STEM ethical? Although I think what you just spoke about um, before is to like a values-based um, approach to career. That seems like a good starting place, definitely. Yes, I think, um, I think, uh, understanding your values, as I say, is important. I think being open-minded and listening to others is important. And I guess a core 
component for me is also being aware of all the other people <laughs> all the other people working around you and with you and and who and who will be impacted by your work um and and thinking about the whole system in that way i'm i'm, I'm i think in terms of systems that's kind of just how my brain works and i think it's it's really important and useful from the point of view of supporting your values and and um working in an ethical way to to appreciate all the time that every action you take is not just your action there are impacts on everybody around you on um both immediately and locally but also um much more generally uh, I, um i suppose a good example for a long time i've been involved in a whole range of work about research culture in, in trying to create uh, environments where research happens that support everybody where everybody's ideas are valued where um that excitement of of pursuing ideas is really felt by everybody and everybody feels that their ideas are contributing and where somebody disagrees with you that's exciting and you're drawn in rather than feel threatened and push away all, all of that i mean that kind of stuff which i think is core to a really creative and stimulating research environment a lot of how we're currently working i think works against that we're we're assessed very much as individuals rather than as a collective um where the the assessment criteria that are used tend to focus on a rather narrow range of things which don't actually reflect any of the things that we're really trying to do um directly and, and properly and all of that's created a sort of much more anxiety-based <laughs> research culture which i think works directly counter to what we do and, and what we want to do and how we want to work and at what the, one of the things i've noticed that happens as a result of that is people feel themselves um disempowered um it was actually a, a, a again part of this the project we did with the Nuffield council of bioethics to look at research culture one of the most striking things was the way all the actors in the system said they recognized it was a problem they didn't like it but they were completely powerless to do anything about it and that was everybody top to bottom <laughs> but i think particularly kind of researchers on the lab floor feel that that, that they are not they can't contribute to improving things and when it's a whole systems problem like we have everybody has some agency everyone has some power to contribute and i think for everybody to recognize that is a is a really important um way to to improve things what you do locally how you interact with your colleagues how you um present your data all of those things um add up to make a research culture and as i said right at the beginning it is simply not the case that you have to fit in with some um kind of conception of the the kind of sharp-edged elbow competition you, you just don't have to do it you can choose and i think realizing that you have that choice on the one hand it's frightening because you have a responsibility with that on the other hand it, it's reassuring um because it gives you back your sense of who you are, which I think is crucial. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, I think that uh, comment there about uh, responsibility actually leads really nicely into um, the final question um, for the interview today. So one area 
we might think scientists have responsibility in um, is around public engagement and how that connects to, say, responsible innovation and the responsibilities of scientists. So what should young STEMists do today to contribute to public ethics debates? Yes, so I think, um, you know, one of the things I that is core to my values is that research and innovation needs to be kind of with the people for the people um and it's a if it's working properly it should be a kind of collective human endeavor that everybody feels engaged with and excited about and and you know proud of that we've managed to understand so many exciting things about the world we live in that's that's a sense of 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 joy and kind of fulfillment <laughs> and at the same time um, we can use that knowledge to make everybody's lives better to, and to protect our planet and all of those kinds of things. <laughs> and so I think that if one views what you're doing in that context and what your goals are in that context and the notion of public engagement actually becomes something else. I, I, I've lived through an era where we've, we started with a thing that was called public understanding of science, which is where clever scientists tell people who are stupid and ignorant what they know, um, and then everything will be all right. <laughs> um, to an era where it's called public engagement, where you're so, you, clever scientists tell stupid people what they know, and they listen to what the stupid people say, and that's still not right. Uh, it, you know, we've come some way, but it's not, it's not nearly far enough. I, 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 think, I think that the goal really is to think about research and innovation, as I say, as a whole society activity, as a community activity in which everybody has a, an investment, whether that's the work that they do or just, you know, the way, you know, who they are and how they get to live their lives. I think that's crucial. And I think coming at um, interactions with diverse groups, publics, different kinds of stakeholders in that frame of mind is, is, is how it's how I would always like to start those interactions. And so, uh, you know, in the context of ethics, I, 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 I found it really interesting to talk to a wide range of people about different issues and understand, yeah, how they frame those, how it matters to them, all of those things. And it, it's, it's really interesting and it it's not necessarily at all what you think I think there you know there are a lot of issues where um you know I, I I've spent a lot of time for example with discussions over genetic modification and over the years it's become absolutely clear to me that genetic modification has become a kind of a kind of poster child, a kind of red flag issue that has absolutely nothing for in the vast majority of cases to do with the modification itself. Some people are, are genuinely straightforwardly opposed to the whole concept. The vast majority of people have no problem with the concept at all, but it's become a kind of um, a, a kind of touchstone almost for for what people think of as kind of nasty profit driven environmentally destructive agriculture. And so, um, which it isn't, you can, you can use it to do all kinds of fantastic environmentally beneficial, um, you, you can use it in fantastically good ways. But because it's now got this label as everything nasty about agriculture, when you're having the discussions, it, 
there are quite often um, researchers on, on one side, because it does become a side, saying, you know, trying to explain what it is and what you can do with it and all of those kinds of things. But that's just not the conversation that the people with whom you're talking want to have. They're interested in, in the agricultural system, in who's in charge of it, who's making the money, as I say, that equitable distribution of risks and benefits. And so if you instead start with that conversation where actually almost everybody completely agrees, it's astonishing how much agreement there is, and then build from there into um, how best to deliver that kind of world, um, then you have this very constructive, engaged discussion, and maybe there's disagreements along the way, but you're on common ground to resolve those. And, and that I think is to me the, the key with a lot of these discussions, it gets back to this open-minded um, multifaceted debate. If you go in with that in mind, with, with, with just listening to try to understand where people are and where they're coming from, you can, it's very unusual that you can't find a common ground on from which to start. And I think that's the kind of core of those of a high quality uh, discussion in, in any topic, really. Thanks to Professor Dem Otterlin Leiser for that brilliant interview. Andrew Gibson and the rest of the British Pugwash team for their support in producing this podcast, and the Marmot Charitable Trust, the funder of this project. <laughs>